you can't give someone dignity, you honor their dignity. When you treat them like infants, when you treat them like they can't think for themselves and they, you know, they don't have any agency, then you're confirming that powerlessness. You are not empowering them to honor a person's dignity, even if they don't feel quite there. That's a big deal. That can be really, really helpful to someone. But you're meeting them on their platform, not on yours. Welcome everyone to Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare, and I'm one of the hosts of the podcast, and I'm here with JJ Jen Flown, who will uh, introduce today's special guest. Right, well, we do have an extra special guest. We are here uh, with Domina L, who is one of my favorite people ever. Um, and I don't know, Al, how would, how, how would you like to be introduced? How, how do you like to be referred to? I'm looking at your website right now, but. Um, Domina L is fine. Domina L, um, that's fine. I am an erotic service provider, have been so, um, going on 20 years now. And I also call myself an adult play facilitator. (laughs) I was going to say, yeah, there's, um. I see that it's, it's adult playlist on your website, but I also see like fetish artist, which I think is a really cool phrase. Yeah. <laughs> or sort of, or sort of practice. Um, but beyond sort of your work, you also do a lot of political work too. You're, you're, you're very involved in that realm, right? Yes. Um, I have been, um, involved in sex work advocacy, erotic service provision, advocacy and activism since 2010. And um, that's very, very important part of my life. And so this is, so we've done interviews with people before and whatnot, but it's been with people who I don't know super well. So this is weird because I'm like, I'm asking you questions, you know, I know answers to, but (laughs) but for, but for all of our our listeners out there who I think are going to love you just as much as we do. So this is clearly going to be a very biased podcast in terms of us thinking you're wonderful. (laughs) But so what, what sort of prompted you from transitioning from being an erotic service provider to being an erotic service provider who is also very publicly active and then very visible, I would say, within within the field well originally I had well, I had been experiencing some things that were not very good one of them was just a situation with harassment and uh, where my my work was being used to put me in a uh, very precarious and uh, vulnerable situation and um, well you know get into the deep details of that but um, then there was an assault that I experienced and I did not feel safe to report, and that person even used, and this was not a client, it was someone that I had a personal uh, relationship with, and um, he used my work, you know, threatened me with my work. If you call 911, I will uh, make sure that, you know, you're just seen as nothing but a hooker and blah, 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 and and I was like, whoa, I mean, it it really hit me hard, and um, 
other aspects of my life, personal aspects were weaponized and that really woke me up that I was not, I did not have equal protection under law. I did not have the ability to safely go to law enforcement without feeling that I would be discriminated against and, and perhaps even deal with greater harm than what I had been dealing with. So that really made me mad. And then when I um, started investigating what other people had gone through, I got even madder. And I reached out to other people who were active in, you know, activism around erotic service providing. And that's how, you know, it began. And eventually I found ESPLRP, the Erotic Service Provider Legal Education and Research Project. And ESPLRP, you know, I really wanted to get you know, I wanted to invest in something, my time, my life, my essence, into something that was really going to make a difference. And, and there's, you know, so many different uh, aspects to uh, sex worker rights advocacy that are very important. But to me, I wanted to get to the heart, the, the core of it. And the core of it is the law, you know, where the law stands, the criminalization of erotic services. And, you know, once we decriminalize, that is going to open the floodgates for, for so many of these other issues to be better dealt with. So that's why ESPLRP was the, the right choice for me, uh, because that's the focus of ESPLRP is to, to change the law. And for the audience who doesn't understand the landscape, like what's legal, what isn't legal, like what does that look like, what do you, what do, you do within that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's gray, you know, it can be very gray. I mean, the, the laws are so vague. Basically, if someone, if you're not married, to, and it's interesting to me that the laws, they do use language that eliminates married people. And, you know, there's a reason for that, because married people have a certain degree of sexual privacy rights um, that are acknowledged, although not as much as people might assume um, from my discovery. Um, you know, when you have, in, I'll, I'll skip over here to the left a second, you know, in our court case that we have in the Ninth Circuit that Esplerp has, Esplerp versus Gascon, they have stated, the government stated in one of their briefs that sex, even within a protected relationship, marriage, is not a human right. So, I mean, I think that's a pretty big deal that, uh, you know, most people just assume that they have the right to have consensual sex. Well, you don't, and, and that's something that needs to change. But um, within, you know, erotic service provision, basically anytime money is exchanged and it's not your husband or wife, if the person gets any kind of grat gratification, well, that can fall under the prostitution penal code. So, of course, they outline certain specific things very specifically, like masturbation or variety. You just got to go look up the penal code for prostitution in, in the individual state, and they outline, you know, certain things specifically. But it's also written so vague that if they want to arrest someone, they're going to be able to do that. And so I guess maybe what, what I'll slide into then is, so this is, it's very much, I think, maybe a model that the onus is sort of on law enforcement and, and the legal system. Whether they want to prosecute you, they will, or yeah, is, is that a fair statement to make, or am I being a little Well, it's very arbitrary. I would say, you know, they can arbitrarily do a lot of different things and make those decisions for themselves. But, you know, uh, now, of course, now also in the state of Colorado, we have the statute. You know, what I have seen lately is they are arresting a lot of people under the escort license statute, which 
you know, I find very interesting because babysitters don't have to have a license. Elderly care, uh, there's many different types of companionship that don't require a license that you could, you know, find just as much reason to say, oh, you need a license here, but they don't. But when it comes to companionship, that was a way that they found, I think it was in the 80s that they passed that law, and they've, they've, re they've really been enforcing that because they don't have to have as much evidence or any evidence. They just have to find your ad online. And if you use the terminology companionship, especially if you're operating without a license, well, they can arrest you for selling companionship, even if no sex is involved. And that's how they've been arresting a lot of people lately. So it's rough, shall I say. And, we're, and what we're talking about, I want to make clear, is we're talking about consensual sex work. We're not talking about trafficking victims when we're discussing this. We're talking about adults who are consensually in the field. They're in the field because mm -hmm. they want to be. What are some examples of that? Like, not everyone knows what an erotic service provider means. Erotic to... service provision can, I like that terminology much better than the terms sex worker. Okay. Um, because sex worker, you know, the word sex is there. Erotic service provision can involve anything from uh, exotic dancing, cam work, which doesn't even involve people being face to face to one another, phone, sex, people, uh, performers dominatrixes, um, erotic massage therapy. I mean, there, there's just so many different. Um, it's a vast um, tantric people, people who uh, teach and guide people through breathing and getting t in tune with their bodies, I mean, uh, sexually, mentally, and physically. Um, there's just so many different things. And, it, and it's very interesting to me, um, you know, just this, the study of the, the industry, we call it the industry, but um, there's just such a vast spectrum of uh, different vocations in it. And it's big. I mean, there are a lot of people providing erotic services. And, um, you know, I've been in the industry now for close to 20 years. And that, I think, to me, is is one of the biggest misconceptions if we're going to talk just maybe about some legally uh, U.S.-based erotic service provision or U.S.-based laws sort of around prostitution. I think most of the public has a very particular idea of what prostitution looks like or what in that erotic service provision equals prostitution, which equals sort of street escorting, which equals things they've seen on Law & Order SVU. <laughs> and, and, it, and it gets very... Uh, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, that then gets conflated with human trafficking. So then it becomes that every sex worker is female, every female sex worker is trafficked, everyone is is a victim. And so I think that's that's what I love about sort of this erotic service provision driven legal reform, because it's actually you guys out there with what you want, sort of a, a self-driven field. But what I want to touch on really quickly is you mentioned decriminalization, and, and we've talked about that in previous podcasts, but why, why decriminalization as opposed to legalization or regulation or as opposed to just sort of a, a reform of the existing law to make it less vague? Well, um, hmm. I mean, I know that's a big question, I, but. In, well, it's, it's really important question. And I think, you know, with the conversations that go on consistently, people, I mean, I, I think we have the majority of the public is on our side, that, but they don't understand the difference between legalize, legalizing. In fact, I see these conversations in libertarian groups a lot where people are like, legalize it, legalize it, you know, it should be legal. 
and they don't understand the nuances you know between decriminalization and legalization legalization is another form of criminalization and it is a failed policy we see uh the good example in uh Nevada, where the workers do not have control of their own labor. Under decriminalization, the workers have the power, and that's who you want to have the power. Um, it doesn't mean that you wouldn't have any regulations, you know, necessarily. There might be, uh, we know that regulatory schemes are going to come into play. In fact, you know, once we we, we need to be organizing now the sex the sex worker rights movement around you know pushing back against regulatory screen, schemes which are definitely they probably are already there ready to go for when uh, we win our freedom you know we should be at the helm of those discussions and you know if we don't have control of our own labor and the ability to negotiate our own wages and safe working conditions then we're going to be exploited <laughs> by bosses that are, you know, like, like the guy down there in, uh, outside of Las Vegas, who is a millionaire. Anyway, you know, we really need to be in control of our own labor. And under decriminalization, you don't have arrests anymore. Nevada is one of the top three states for the highest number in prostitution arrests, even though it's the only state that has any degree of legal prostitution. There's many different problems with it, but, you know, I mean, that's a, we could have a complete discussion all about, you know, the differences between legalizing decriminalization and, and um, debates about the pros and cons of legalization. And it's been different in different areas. You know, America is so different than say Germany. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have a social safety net, uh, like, you, you have in other countries and I mean there's just so many different factors that come into play but in this country decriminalization would in my opinion be the best route to go um, because you're going to give the power to the workers you're going to stop arresting people whether they are victims of trafficking or not and either way that is so bad and so destructive and it's, it's bad for the miners and and for oh well <laughs> Speaking of that, it's kind of a side issue, but you know how recently they decriminalized prostitution in California for minors. I was Remember just thinking that? about that. Yeah. Well, what most people don't realize is that <laughs> they're not charging them, but what's happening is when they find them, they are taking them to facilities and they're holding them indefinitely. And they are terrorizing them and... Um, manipulating them into turning states witness in cases and from what we've seen you know the, the little bit of research regarding minors in the sex trade you know for, uh, the John Jay School of Criminal Justice did that study out of New York City where they found that over half were boys and 70% um, of them have gone looking for non-existent services that may have prevented them from doing uh, any kind of sex work and um, like over 90%, it was, it was 90 or 96% were not working under a pimp. You know, I think that the narratives frame the situation in such a way 
that it doesn't, you know, account for what's really going on in the world. There are minors in the trade, obviously, and um, they don't need to be arrested. They shouldn't be being held against their will in a juvenile detention facility or whatever kind it is, and um, forced to turn someone in who may or may not even be a trafficker. But that's what's happening. So, you know, when you have, that's, that's you know, criminalization for you and how the law enforcement uh, tends to deal uh, with situations. So, <laughs> yeah, there does there does seem to be a certain history of you know criminality being your access to services that you need to have been picked up, you need to have been charged, you need this uh, now this record to follow you in order to gain civil services in in the U.S. Which certainly then I I'm thinking doesn't help then these juveniles when they become adults and they are released and are looking around for, for job opportunities. I've always wondered, you know, why aren't there voluntary services that, you know, all the money that's gone into conflating uh, erotic services uh, as a profession with trafficking. Oh, and, and a point that um, Max, Maxine Dugan has made, which really resonated with me, you know, what other industries where you find any type of forced labor, is it criminalized? in order to uh, address any trafficking that goes on in it. I mean, domestic workers, farms, agriculture, fishing, or any of those industries criminalized in order to deal with the trafficking that goes on with those in, within those industries? No. So, you know, why is it that, uh, you know, erotic services is that, that one special industry that we need to criminalize everyone in it to deal with any forced labor that's going on with it. But, but, it, but it would be so good if there were voluntary services and with all the money, and there's been some really interesting studies that have been done on the rescue industry, as uh, Laura Augustine has termed it, um, you know, all the m billions of m dollars have gone into it. And that money could have been used, you know, for services for people, but anyway <laughs> well i mean i do think that when when we've talked about sort of the the amount of human trafficking that happens within the sale of illegal drugs right particularly with like the use of young people for for drug trafficking or drug selling that human trafficking occurs there too and so then you do have that that same element of criminality but i think there's the feeling there when drugs are involved that this is also someone committing a crime that needs to be punished. And I think maybe that's because drugs and sex, and, and, and particularly in the U.S. context, are automatically like these moral ills, right? Or these ethical dilemmas that we need to fix or reprogram people, maybe maybe not the system. Which I leads me to my next question with you is that how, how much when you guys are out there working, um, or when you're out there kind of as a, a speaker trying to, to fight for these legal reforms, how much pushback do you get from people who say, well, the actual thing that you're pushing for is itself dangerous, that you're doing harm to yourself? I can't imagine someone trying to save you actively. I feel like you're you're pretty you're pretty badass. But, you know, are those are there some of those attempts and things that, well, I don't expect this is not me talking, but I could see someone being like, uh, I don't trust erotic service providers to advocate for themselves because what they're doing is is harmful, end quote from anonymous person on the internet. <laughs> well, I can imagine all kinds of things. <laughs> you know, um, you know, knowing the reality is a different 
thing. And um, that's just shutting people down and silencing people. And Mm -hmm. it's too easy to do that. And, you know, I, I, years ago, I don't really want to get too much into my personal story, but originally there was a time, my whole story is is very interesting in that regard that, you know, I, I was trafficked by my circumstances into, you know, work originally. And, um, you know, there came a time where I was, you know, had to question, you know, and I did, I questioned myself, what I was doing. But, um, you know, I had a foundation of holistic work prior to that period, you know, so I was able to lean on a lot of that. And I know so many other erotic service providers who've come out, who've had other careers in holistic medicine. Gosh, I mean, that's kind of a complex question that um, yeah. doesn't really have a simple answer because, I mean, I think you, you can just tell people to shut up in your head or you can listen to what they say. Sit with me for a little bit and I don't think anybody <laughs> would have any questions about my uh, ability to advocate for myself or my agency, you know, and many of my peers, you know, if they would sit mm-hmm. and listen us and stop you know silencing us in their own minds with their own imaginations that they're offended by because they really are mostly offended by their own imaginations many instances that I've noticed and um, there has been resistance and um, you know those people have a lot of money and uh, lobbying power and there has been a definite conflation of erotic services as a profession and forced sex labor and and it was consciously purposely done and then eventually it was woozled the woozle effect into reality the i was kind of blown away that the woozle effect was an actual term (laughs) that's exactly how a lot of these human trafficking uh narratives have come to be fact in our social construct is through the woozle effect and because our platform you know we don't have the money we don't have the funding to create public service announcements or to uh, lobby before Congress and do many things that we really need to be doing. That's why our voices have not been heard because, you know, we're here and we are many. There are many of us, many of us of all ages, ethnicities, uh, situations, and, you know, we're pretty fed up with being silenced and uh told to go away (laughs) we're not gonna go away let me tell you we're not well that's i was uh talking to a student little little undergraduate student today who's interested in doing work with sex work and uh studying sort of the gender-based realities of it from an ir perspective and it like filled my heart with with joy because it's a it's a new fresh face in in the field but one of the things she and i talked about was i've been at human trafficking conferences before that have had maybe panels on sex worker rights or this idea of the reality of erotic service providers in the u.s and there's not a single erotic service provider or or someone identifying as a sex worker in the audience it's a it's a sea of like academics or raid and rescue organizations or people from ngos and it's it's not hard to find y'all out in the world for for people who who are politically active and want to be involved in these conversations and that must be weird from your perspective as well as well as insulting but it's got to be hard to you know how how do you get in the room of of a politician and be taken seriously when you're when you're in a field that's so stigmatized any any thoughts on that or well you know i used to go to the capitol and participate in uh the human trafficking awareness day 
And the last time I went, they relegated us to this tiny room downstairs, way off in the corner with the door shut. <laughs> and I had all my stuff there, you know, and, and flyers. And I mean, they put, they put you in erotic service provision jail. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, one of the earlier times I went, I actually had the woman who can't remember her name now, but she actually physically assaulted me. <laughs> and this has happened to other people uh, in the movement, um, in the erotic service provider movement, uh, when they have attempted to participate. And the dirty looks that we get from people, you know, we're their enemies. And, you know, I went one year and the, the victim of human trafficking that was there to speak Somehow she knew who I was and was, you should have seen the dirty look she was giving me. And it's like, wait a minute, you know, I'm not against you. We're not against you. But it's time to stop conflating what we do with what is going on with any forced labor. It's, it's they are different things. And it's just not, it's not okay to keep, the laws are affecting us. The laws that are being passed are having horrible, damaging, detrimental effects on people in my community. They're, they're harming us. And we're the ones really being harmed by these laws. So to have a voice is really important. That's why, you know, when we've tried to be a part of these conversations, we have. But you know, if they would distinguish a difference between erotic service provision as a career and forced sex labor, that would really clear a lot of things up. And, um, you know, I'm not a sex work apologist. Mm -hmm. um, there was a time when I, I was more, you know, because of my circumstances and it, and it made sense. But then as time went on, I realized, wait a minute, we shouldn't be given our rights because we're poor or because we choose to do what we do in certain circumstances, you know, our rights are being violated, period. Bottom line, and that needs to stop because I have rights and those rights need to be acknowledged. I need equal protection under the law. I need to, to be the one, the master of my destiny and in control of my life. And who are you or you are you to tell me, you know, what I can and can't do and to be happy and live according to my convictions. So, you know, I don't do the sex work apologizing. You know, I'm mad now, my rights are being violated and I want my rights and that's where I, my platform I work from. But um, the conflation has been very effective, definitely. It raises the question though, for people who may not understand the differences, what, what does agency look like within sex work and erotic service providers? Like. What are some of the key differences for people who may not be familiar? I think it's pretty simple. We decide what we want to do. We do what we want to do. And, um, you know, somebody who's forced is, is being forced. They don't have the ability. But, I don't know, it gets kind of gray area in some, in some ways. Because, say, if someone is a drug addict and they are doing sex work, and that was my original situation, I had gone through all of my savings and I had to maintain, you know, just to be normal. And if you don't have money, you can't work. Your, you know, your stability is gone when you're in that kind of a, a situation. And it was how I survived. It was how I, you know, had a roof over my head when, you know, it's how I maintained. And there was no services for me. There was nothing that I could do, nowhere I could go. 
I, you know, I went to a detox for three days because I didn't have insurance. I didn't have money. And, but th after three days, you're back out on the street. So, you know, what are you going to do? And, and yeah. And, and I didn't want to be, you know, back then I did, I had no consciousness of, of the traffic movement. Um, I didn't even think it had really gotten, uh, it was just starting because that was like around 2000 when I was in that situation, 1999, 2000. And so the, the modern, you know, trafficking law was just being passed and all of these orgs were just being conceived and, and brought forth. So none of that stuff, there was, there were nobody out there trying to save us or rescue us. And I, I would find, I've never thought about that before. You know, what would I, I probably would have given somebody the right act if they would have said to me, I would have been so mad at them. Like, who in the hell do you think you are? You know, unless you can, you know, put me in a house, you know, put me in the nicest drug treatment program that money can buy um, when I'm ready, because you're not always ready right away. <laughs> you're going through your process. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the failure of a lot of these orgs is that you can't make somebody heal. You can't make somebody process their trauma. You can't make somebody deal with the issues going on in their life that are keeping them in that cycle of dysfunction. You can't. You can't do it. They have to do it willingly and on their own terms. And, and I think that's another flaw with all of this treatment that these orbs tend to provide is that it's not on your own terms. It's on their terms. And that does not work. That will never work. Yeah, I think we've we've tried to make this clear when we've done podcasts on sex trafficking before that there's there's it's not a very sort of black and white category like that sex work can be kind of put in a, on one particular box and that so what we have is that you have people who are in erotic service provision who are trafficked you have people in erotic service provision who are being exploited and that's a and they're being exploited in maybe different ways maybe just because they're not getting paid enough or maybe because the law is putting them into into an uncomfortable position maybe their reasoning for being in erotic service provision like they're just not like mentally well but then you have people who are there for the full consent and like this is a job that they picked and they want, right? Our stories are not getting heard as much as all the other. And I think I, I've seen people focus on those horrific stories in a way that I, I find almost unhealthy that, you know, they, they seem to not, not everybody. I mean, I think there are people who legitimately care about people, you know, and they want to do something good and help people. But I've seen, you know, observing people in, in, in this whole spectrum of anti-trafficking rhetoric and, and, mm -hmm. and sex work rhetoric that they, there's people who, who enjoy the trauma porn is what I call it. And they sit there with tears rolling down their face, you know, oh, and they want it to be true. They want those narratives to be true. And when they see people like me standing up, you know, I think that's where you get those people who are like, oh, they just don't know what they're talking about. You know, don't silence me with your imagination, you know, because I can speak. <laughs> Well, and I think I think something too that you mentioned again. It's it's this. It's not just uh, that everyone's experiences are the same, but that everyone also fits the same mold. So that everyone's female, that everyone is largely white, uh, heterosexual, that everyone 
has has been through some sort of trauma or, or views sex in the same way. When the more here in Denver, the more that I've I've kind of met people within the erotic service community, both both people who are clients and then people who are providers. No one is the same. Everyone is very different. Everyone is there for sort of very different different reasons. And everyone I've met seems to be exceptionally like healthy and happy and actually a lot more together than most of, I would say, mentally far better, doing far better than most of the people I meet in like academia. <laughs> so I'm that's, that's been strange for me. <laughs> no, but but in particular too for me, it was, it was interesting that – I, I can't think of a time in popular culture where I've I've seen sort of the depiction of like a guy as an erotic service provider who's happy and, and healthy and, and together. And so it's been sort of horrific trauma focused on like male children. And so I think that's interesting as well, too, that it's this uh, very woman focused field. Also, you know, if everybody that was sexually abused as children ended up in sex work, everyone would be sex workers. You know, sexual. this world is sexually dysfunctional. It truly is. I mean, I, I have felt that way for a long time. And, and part of the reason I, I do the work I do is because I am a healing artist. You know, that's what I, you know, with the holistic medicine that I was practicing uh, before. And, you know, this is another part of the holistic aspect of humanity. And sexuality is the very core, one of the very core parts of humanity. And, you know, we've not been dealing with that puzzle piece very well, ever. And it's, it's part of the puzzle piece that, you know, the puzzle pieces that I think humans, we really need to get a grasp on and and not through stigma not through ideologies through honesty and uh, transparency and communication and um, establishing healthy boundaries but who's to say that if someone has had a trauma in the past that they cannot use their work as a erotic service provider to process and heal and um, transform that trauma into healing and then you know I think the best counselors and the best healers the best people whether uh, in terms of uh, psych psychological healing or or physical you know they're people or let's say drug counselors they're people who have gone through it they know what you're going through they have been there they understand they have some comprehension lived experiences that they can you know use to refer to that um, if you haven't you know experience that processing and that healing you may not be able to really help someone to the to a more profound depth as someone who has and I think you know many of the sex workers that I, I know um, you know we see what we do as therapeutic we see what we do as very important work that it, it's time for humanity to, to start dealing with that and I work with many couples I gosh I mean we could do a whole like episode just on um, you know the experiences that you know that I've experienced with this work that I mean I am just so humbled by it that I am in the position to, to have that access, that very personal access to what I consider, this is my sacred space, and anytime I am connecting with others, their, their self is their sacred space, um, and, and to be in that intimate space with people 
it's, it's a big deal to me. And, um, you know, I am exampling boundaries. I'm exampling communication. I'm exampling. I want to be as healthy of, of a person as I can be. And, you know, with the work that I do with people, that is the platform that I am working from. And, yeah, I've experienced a variety of different circumstances in the realm of the industry. And, uh, you know, I could just say that, you know, people really need to stop, you know, trying to make people do what they think is right and figure out what's right for themselves because I don't think people have really figured that out for themselves most of the time. And so can, is it sure. correct that, like, part of what you and some other people do is communicate and have honest conversation and talk about these things of a sexual or gender nature that maybe people aren't talking about and that that's part of what's therapeutic. Is that correct? Yes. But, you know, even without that, I mean, you know, touch, intimacy, um, it's so important. Humans need that. I mean, look at what happens to babies when they are not touched. It's not good. You know, when babies are, it, it's bad. When, and, and how is it that we've decided that after a baby is so you know, grown to a certain degree that humans don't need that touch anymore? They don't need that intimacy anymore. I disagree. I think that that's part of what we need to come to terms with again as human beings uh, as we enter a highly technological age is to put back that piece of, of connectedness that, that we could be losing, you know, in many ways. I mean, and, and that physical part of connecting and touch. I mean, as a massage therapist, I knew that was true. And, um, you know, that's another going back to the erotic services. You know, people bring to the table their biases and their own head trips around sexuality. And, and wow, I mean, I, I know, you know, there's a that's the puzzle piece that so many people don't really, you know, they don't want to deal with it, they or it's stigmatized or it comes through in a in a very disconnected way. I mean, it, it's just it would be nice, you know, if we if we got more real around that and and got rid of all the shame. I think that's a big part of what's wrong is the shame, you know, that that is comes with sexuality in so many instances in this culture and many others is the shame part and that's what is so destructive and helps to create these negative manifestations of sexuality is that shaming stuff and and we need to deal with it but anyway I kind of got off track there but <laughs> well no but I, I think that that's such a that's such a big part of it because one of one of the things is is that not every client who sees or, or most clients who see an erotic service provider are not it's not that these are these are broken or deviant people it's that they're people oh. they're humans with oh. with very human needs I deal with people I felt like <laughs> you know oh my goodness there are times when I have been, I have served as a grief counselor for people. Um, you know, people have come to me because they their wives, you know, passed away, and, and they just want to have a communion with another person. You know, that it, that might be all we do. I, I have just sat with people uh, for hours, just listening to them talk, 
I mean, you know, that's another thing is what is erotic services? You know, that that's what kind of where I got off track there was, you know, it's not just one thing. It's not just this is what it is and there's it could be so many different things and it is so many different things and each human being is so different and unique. That's the kind of part of the fun too of being in control of your work is you get to do things your way and you get to create, you know, your platform. Uh, it's very creative work. The business part of it as well as the actual what you do, you know, the service you provide with your client. Um, you know, it, 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 like the other day I put someone in a balloon, <laughs> you know, um, but it, it's, it's therapy. It really is therapy. And even when it's not engaged that way, like the person doesn't have to be, I'm a therapist and this is therapeutic. Um, just that human con connection, the communication, the touching, the intimacy, um, that alone is, you know, makes it therapeutic. Um, of course, I happen to believe that you know, what you put into something, you get out of it. So, of course, you know, I like taking my work into greater depths that involve helping people to work out issues of shame and, and head trips that they carry around with them that make, make them unhappy people. And a lot of it is rooted in shame. And that's why I feel so strongly about that. It's like, wow, this person, yeah, this person was sexually abused as a child. They were shamed you know, that, that their development is going to have that cloud over it, that weird, you know, negativity around it. And I think that's maybe where a lot of people, you know, their, their sexual dysfunction is rooted in how they were treated as children. And, and then the people who are, who are coming to you for sort of these, it seems to me, at least from the experience I've got, is that most, most people in this field as erotic service providers treat this very much like it's a vocation for themselves that this that this is this is a career where they get to kind of serve a community um, in the way that a lot of people who maybe do sort of like social type services or the way that I look at teaching it, it's not I think altogether that different and so I think when the human trafficking community says no 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 people who are erotic service providers are automatically victims I think I think that's quite insulting to not just the people who are providing the services that are so desperately needed but the people who need those services by then saying, oh, well, you're, you're, you're a trafficker or you're complicit in trafficking if you, if you seek out these services that I think a lot of people need to, to do to feel okay or to feel healthy. And certainly one of the things I think Seth and I have learned as people in the field who just do the research, there are a lot more people in erotic service provision and a lot more people who go see erotic service providers than maybe the general public would, would admit or like to admit. I don't know if you can agree oh, yes. with me or not there. <laughs> Oh, I've heard some of the terminology or, or the data or whatever, the, the fakes yeah. that are given 2%, you know? Yeah. You know, that's been pulled out of thin air by a few of these anti-trafficking, uh, anti-prostitution is what they really need to be called because um, they really truly are anti-prostitutionists. They're not just anti-trafficking. They are anti-anything involving erotic services and the exchange of money. And, you know, that that's, you know, really it kind of it's weird to me. It's like, OK, and just like one of the judges in the Ninth Circuit case asked the opposition judge, um, you know, why should something that is legal to give away and to do be illegal when money is involved? 
And, you know, that's just kind of bottom line that uh, for a lot of people is that when they might judge you, oh, you're not a good person. And I think a lot of these people that get involved with the anti-trafficking, you know, there's greatly faith-based organizations who have religious ideologies that they bring to the table. So, you know, a lot of get, you don't have sex till you get married. You should be a virgin when you get married. You should, you know, masturbation is bad. Um, a lot of sexual shaming. And I think that, um, you know, they are projecting their sexuality on to others. They are, you know, forcing, you know, you want to talk about force, you're forcing your perspective and your worldview and your opinions about something onto everyone else. Everyone should be, live according to you, what you believe. And that is extremely offensive to me. And, it, you know, it's as if, um, you know, somebody who, oh, well, one of the comments, I'll never forget it, was from one of the, the org in the, that, what was it called? Rose or something like that in Phoenix, uh -huh. um, where one of the, the executive board member of this anti-trafficking diversion program, you know, made comment about, you know, once you come into contact with all those fluids and have all that, you know, you, you're just never the same. You'll never be the same again. And, and, you know, you're just, you know, tainted for the rest of your life. And it was disgusting. Her comment was disgusting. And, but you could tell that, that that was her head trip that, you know, she had that loop of trauma porn going in her head and she was bringing, that to every one of the clients that she was dealing with and uh, traumatizing them, no doubt, with her perspectives and views, uh, probably more uh, than sex work ever could traumatize any of them. Um, if you, you know, talk to people, you know, themselves, um, I mean, I've heard people say that, you know, that's what is traumatizing. It's not what we, the work we do, it's you know, how these people treat us and talk to us and, and deal with this and get them away, get them away from us, you know, save us from the saviors. <laughs> yeah, we actually, we talked about this when we did um, the podcast on, on Monica Peterson, who, I mean, you knew, you knew Monica as well and her, her big piece on what, you know, what are we saving women from and what are we saving them to this idea um, of, you know, not a lot of thought going into necessarily how people are, are being harmed by this whole sort of savior complex. And also, too, this idea that everyone in erotic service provision is performing the same type of sex. As, as you mentioned, kind of briefly, you put people in balloons, which I think is like the coolest, neatest thing ever. But to me, is not something that I would necessarily think of as being sexual. I could see it being like, if I think about it academically, I could see it being sort of intimate. But to me, it seems like it'd be a really fun thing to do at a party, but like in no way a sexual thing. But I, I for some people, I guess it is. It's a very yeah, people have balloons. <laughs> yeah, and and so you know, I I get it that people people are very different and sort of everyone's kind of wired a little differently, but it's so interesting to me that someone who 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 runs her own business and who puts people into really impressive giant balloons could be picked up in a sting with saying, "Well, you're not in control here," when you literally have another human being in a balloon <laughs> that you're sitting on. Like I find it like it'd be very hard for them to attack you. I feel. From inside a balloon. Yeah, they're. <laughs> it's a fun image, though. But I'm just, you know, you have someone in a giant hamster ball, and they're like, "But no, you need to be rescued from this. You're, you're at risk." Maybe that's why they haven't come after me. You know, Maybe 
they Maybe. don't know how to deal with me. <laughs> they're, they're unprepared. Plus, they're, they're going to be in for it, a, a fight of their life, you know. If I'm not going to, yeah, I'm going to fight that. Cords of supporters in latex just coming after them. But I, I think it's this is something we've also talked about too, is that it's, it's just so interesting to me because U.S. culture is so sex-based. You know, we, it's, it's, it's sex sells everything I've seen increasingly over the last couple of years, like fetish wear becoming more and more fashion wear. Um, you know, I teach a, I, I TA and I see someone wearing like a harness, you know, over like a leather harness over their clothing because, you know, and so we see all these mentions of sex and sexuality, you know, sex is used to sell everything from cars to hamburgers, but when it comes to the actual, right. So we can't have that conversation. That's a point I've made many times that we're not, you know, we are in a hyper-sexualized environment. And that's very confusing, too. I mean, good grief. How confusing uh, can it get? Oh, it's mm-hmm. getting very confusing lately um, because you have all this, you know, toothpaste, you know, is, is sold with sexual, you know, uh, but... At the same time, you know, we're not really talking. And that's another thing I loved about the BDSM community was that they are definitely talking more. than, mm-hmm. uh, and, and there's different subcultures in the sex-positive realm where uh, people are because it's required. You have to have communication and negotiation is another important word as a part of that process. And, um, you know, that's what I found that the, you know, people in these cultures were definitely bringing those issues to the table and consent, consent is huge. And I think that's why the national coalition for sexual freedom, which is the BDSM org, you know, that's fighting for alternative sexual lifestyles, um, as an organization, consent is one of their big platforms because, you know, I think it's a, big important part of the that puzzle but anyway they're dealing with that they're talking about that rather and um, you know that's something that you know how many people are, are really doing that and and I think it's it's I think we're at a place where change is happening it is happening I mean there there's you know that's why so many people support that erotic service provision not be criminalized anymore that if you talk to people in everyday life, not these anti-trafficking, anti-prostitutionists, and not law enforcement, um, but you talk to Joe Schmo and Jane Schmo out in the public uh, sphere, um, I think you'd find that the great majority of them are actually with us, that they want to see. I think that's kind of one of the reasons why a lot of this rhetoric started, you know, they, they knew, um, like in the late 90s, there seemed to have been a big push for anti-porn, and they weren't able, they, they could not attack the adult industry that way because of First Amendment rights, and so they came back around, um, you know, since there wasn't a federal anti-prostitution law, you know, let's do this, let's, let's further criminalize this, and let's do it this way. Because who can argue with Save the Children? And the FBI had already done that, you know, back in 1905, 1907 or whatever uh, with that human trafficking uh, lie. And it was successful. Um, They'd already seen it work in the past. So why not do it again? You know, it's going to be great to funnel. I I mean, my personal view is that not only are they able, this is a way to generate revenue for law enforcement agencies, 
And of course, the, the rescue industry has blown up. I mean, how many organizations are there? Over 2,000 in the United States alone that are anti-trafficking related, that even in areas where they have never seen a case of trafficking, but it's a way to basically create a career for yourself. You can have, you know, uh, start a nonprofit and, um, you know, get funding from the government as well as from private donations. I mean, people have gotten rich off of this. It has been a, a very successful scam, like that Covenant House down in, in New Orleans that is shutting down the uh, – the clubs, you know, putting women who a lot of single mothers out of work, um, all under the guise of rescuing them from trafficking, and there, there's no trafficking going on in those dance clubs. But that's how they are using. They're using that rhetoric, and and it's working. You know, it, it's a way to, you know, get the public approval for this false lie that you know because if they were just simply to say well, we're going to shut down the dance clubs. Well, the public would be like, why? What's wrong with the dance clubs? Or uh, we're going to you know, shut down the, the porn. Or the, I mean, it, it just wouldn't work. But when you claim that their people are being exploited and hurt, and especially children, well, then you're going to, you know, no one's listening anymore. They tune, tune out reason and rational thought process because we've got to save those kids. <laughs> and, you know, hey, I get it. I mean, it happens. I, 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 you know, I don't want to see anybody harmed, but it's a, it's a vastly a lie in the United States how it has been used by these organizations to attack porn, to attack, uh, you, know, you know, gentlemen's clubs, to attack massage parlors, to attack, you know, people like me, um, and it's been, a, it's been very effective, and it has mostly impacted people like me and my clients it has you know if they if they were finding epidemic level of of victims i could understand more but they're not it's not the reality and it's 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 very insidious actually well and it seems like it then as, as we've talked about again that this then directly harms actual human trafficking victims as well too because then the population that should be getting the attention isn't right and i also think that because of all this human trafficking rhetoric mm -hmm. that that has actually given more i i heard a quote from an fbi agent in the last year it was almost like a freudian slip or one of those impulsive like you know they they were being honest without realizing it where yes we're seeing much more of this these days and it's like oh so you're admitting that you weren't seeing it, but now you're seeing more of it. Because you know, when you when you put this stuff out there into people's minds, you don't think there's going to be some people that are going to go, oh, I can pit me some holes. You know, you don't think that there's people that are going <laughs> to. I mean, of course, there are people that are going to pick that up. I mean, it's just, yeah, they're actually creating human trafficking situations is what I'm saying. Yeah, it just, it's, I, I think it's one of the things that, I, I don't know if there is such a, such a thing as doing like, go out and actually meet and pay to have an academic conversation with an erotic service provider day. I don't know if they have, I know they have breakfast with cops and things like that for, for people to, to better get to know their local police force. I don't know if we have one yet for like, get to know your local erotic service provider. But, but it seems that just so much of it is, is misinformation. <laughs> 
uh, and a lot, the vast majority of it driven, it seems like through a dual thing of, of the media and then also policymakers. Sometimes I think working hand in hand, because I think a lot of the times the politicians have only seen like a Liam Neeson movie. And so they feel that like I have a complete handle on. Well, the media loves to use, you know, uh, you know, sex work and sex workers and Hollywood. They, they love playing us and perpetuating a lot of those stigmatized, very marginalized perspectives. We're not too happy about that. We need to be writing those scripts. <laughs> but so with uh, trafficking in general, as, as we've said on other podcasts, a lot of it comes down to vulnerability because other people will seek to control another person and they will use leverage such as the gray legal areas or so people might be convicted or arrested or things like that. When you have this gray area of erotic service providers, sex work, etc., that creates space for people who want to control and exploit others. And so that's partially how it happens. We need to criminalize marriage. <laughs> Domestic abuse is a big thing. And, you know, how many husbands or even wives, you know, take advantage of their more vulnerable spouse <laughs> or people in everyday situations prey on other people that are weaker than them. I mean, let's just criminalize reality and life because we're trying to protect everyone from themselves and from each other. And, you know, I, I that's where I get, you know, I'll go back to, you know, let's create voluntary sa social safety net and, and blast it out there. Hey, if you're having problems, you come to us and there's no conditions here. We've got this help, this help, this help, this help. Otherwise, I mean, what can they do? I mean, even in situations with a, a wife that is being abused, you know, they, they can't really do anything, can they, until something gets reported? I mean, we can't be a nanny state. And I think that's what the trafficking realm tries to do, is to try to control. They just can't justify it, in my mind, because of all the damage that is being done to people in the name of that narrative. And, and they just don't seem to want to see that. You know, all the police officers that are having sex with minors and adults in the, the sex trade and, and sexual contact under the guise of investigating sex trafficking. This is a huge problem. And cops will constantly say, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. But they are doing that. And even when, you know, you pull the arrest records, charging documents, there's a lot more information in those than what gets put out into the public sphere. Like, I could send you these screenshots of documents that show where a police officer was getting his penis stroked before he arrested a woman in a massage parlor. This is happening a lot, a lot more. And you don't hear about that from any of these anti-trafficking ones who are so concerned about the exploitation of anybody in the sex trade, whether they're minors or adults. They never seem to mention that about all the police abuse that is going on. And, or, or, you know, look at that case in, I think it was Sacramento, with uh, the young prostitute. She was a minor, and uh, at least four police officers had sex with her. And then after she turned 18, so like 24 more from six different agencies. And, you know, none of them were punished. 
None of them. They and none of the no heads rolled. Nothing happened. In fact, they even had some kind of award ceremony where a you know number of the people who were involved in that scandal were in attendance to the secret award ceremony. You know, they 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 held it secretly. I'm sure because they knew that quite a few people might be upset. But we found out anyway. But um, nothing's being done about these police and you know or look at the work of uh, Doctor. Uh, Alexandra Lipnick, who wrote Minors, uh, Minor Domestic Sex Trafficking, Victims and Villains, she, I, I have her recorded testimony from, uh, she sat in front of all of these public officials, and it was a public safety commission meeting on the scope of trafficking, and she gets up there and says that minors all over the United States are reporting that police are abusing them more than anyone. And she even gave an example of a police officer getting his penis stroked and then arresting this young woman. And the young woman saying, isn't this supposed to not happen? And, you know, that, how, you know, what, what does that do? And, and she even is quoted as saying, you know, what does that make service provision look like? When the police are bringing you to them after, I mean, it's just messed up. But you don't hear about this stuff from well, the anti-trafficking people. And as I recall, there's also Sorry. quite a few official arrest records for police and sexual assault, right? I don't know if it's you or Billy who, <laughs> who had the list. Well, um, the cases, I mean, I, I'm just aware, I mean, I, I, yes, I mean, there's, there's lots of police officers that have been arrested, you know, for and charged with abusing uh, children, raping sex workers. But I mean, based on what I know about so many other cases that were never even reported and definitely not charged, you know, it's like they've got a real problem with it up in Anchorage, Alaska. And you have a police chief who is sitting there about he was chosen, I believe he, he was a he, he was about to be chosen as the head of the whatever the commission is that investigates police for bad behavior. And he totally denied he had been a police chief there, and he denied that any of his officers had ever engaged in that behavior. And if they did, they would be decertified and and arrested and fired. And yet we have names of officers that we could, you know, say, well, what about this guy, Mr. Bryce, Chief Bryce Johnson, you know, and this guy, and this guy, and, and this, you know, mm -hmm. woman said this, and this woman said that, and nothing is done. That. So, you know, it's not being addressed. It's not. So. <laughs> yeah, well, and my point in bringing that up was when I initially saw a list and relatively light sentences for many of them, I found the number of like provable cops that have committed sexual assault to be quite disturbing. And yeah. so the idea that there's then a whole other layer of cops who are getting away with it makes it even more disturbing. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's very hard. I mean, look at the, the Holtzclaw case. He even has a, a cult following that believes that he's innocent and it believes that they're going to get him out of, uh, you know, prison at some point, you know, because they were prostitutes and drug addicts, all of them except the woman who is the reason why all the cases eventually were charged because she didn't have a record. So she, you know, she stepped forward and she was more credible 
you know, it's too easy to say that a sex worker, you know, well, they're li- they're going to lie, you know, a drug addict's going to lie, you know, of course, and 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 it's hard for people to come forward and because they don't believe they're going to be taken seriously, and if they are actively working in, um, you know, erotic services of any kind, they're going to feel that they're we don't have equal protection under law. We do not. So it's a huge risk, just like it's a risk for me to sit here and talk because it could be used against me and, and hurt me, but I can't not say anything. And one of the reasons I do it is because of where I was at one time and there's no way I would have been able to speak at that time and I think about other people. Um, we're exploited. If people want to worry about exploitation, we're exploited by the government. We're exploited by police. We're exploited by courts. We're exploited by criminalization, which totally damages us in in so many different ways. And you know, if we do get arrested, then good luck getting jobs, getting housing, being able to function at all. So, you know, if they care about us, then give us equal protection under law, which is going to require decriminalization. Well, and I, I think that that seems to me to be the big thing we keep coming back to is that it's stigma. That's, that seems to be the most harmful. And just in terms of people who, who maybe need help can't get access to it because of stigma. People who don't need help are being forced to take assistance because of stigma. And arrest records don't help either. So the combination of stigma and arrest records make it really hard to then do something else. Absolutely. You know, there. I, I had a woman living with me for six months because she could not get, you know, and she had been arrested in a prostitution sting here in Denver. It was sad. The whole thing was sad. You know, the way she described how they were all treated, the car, they kept saying, did you have a, do you have a car? Do you have a car? And she had taken the bus there because she doesn't drive, um, doesn't have a driver's license. And um, they were taking, stealing every person's car. And I mean, if you get it back, great. If not, they, they auction it off and the state absorbs the money. But they really wanted to make sure every single person who they arrested that day, and they were piling these women up in the bathroom of this little hotel. So there were like five women in the bathroom with handcuffs on during this bust. It was just awful. And then after, you know, she, she wanted to fight it. But many of us get forced into taking a plea deal, and then you get forced into your year-long treatment, even though, uh, you know, one of the gender uh, (laughs) inequalities uh, involved in the situation, Um, like, for instance, um, in different counties, it can be different, but in Jefferson County, they they have no interest in the clients going through a year-long program. So you go through a three-day class that supposed to brainwash you into thinking that all prostitution is exploitation and it's horrible and STDs, I'm sure, and and, uh, they pay a fine and they're out of there very quickly. If you are a provider, you're going to be in that program for a year or longer. And her life was completely, I mean, she was going to school. It really messed her up. It messed with her health. It messed with, I mean, she was better off before that arrest than she was after that arrest. And I saw with my eyes, you know, what it did to her. 
And um, and then she had to find a new place to live after her lease went up and different circumstances. She had her whole life became revolved around her probation. And um, so her freedom was gone. Her ability, her, mo her mobility as a person was totally screwed up. And um, then she was having to pay for her ways that she had to do because, you know, even though she wasn't a drug addict and even though they didn't arrest her with any drugs, of course, you know, drugs and prostitution are supposed to go hand in hand all the time. So she had to then get UAs and she had to pay for those UAs and she had to pay for her, uh, you know, the, the treatments and the meetings and it's how the state makes money. So that is how you become a debt slave of the state and that is exploitation. You know, nobody was going to pay those fines for her or her fees or any of that stuff. And and then, you know, how are you going to work at that moment on? You know, who's going to hire you? And she could not get, you know, no one would rent to her because it popped up on her uh, background check. And in this day and age, you know, that is going to pop up for, for certain. And um, it took six months for her to be able to move out of my house and, and you know, find somewhere that would. And it was in another city. She had to wait. So it really, it, it just destroys people and, and just what it does to a person's, uh, you know, heart and mind, you know, having that, it's, it's just horrible. And that's criminalization <laughs> at work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to laugh about, but I mean, it just blows my mind. Like, oh my God. I mean, the people who want to keep this you know criminalized and I mean it's a violation of the rights of people who you know have every right to sell and buy erotic services if they choose to and it's a violation and extremely destructive to people who are in any kind of you know life situation that is unstable I mean you're just throwing them into deeper life crises and you know I will just never be on board with that there, no, no, no. And give people a chance to take care of themselves. It's about dignity, and you can't give someone dignity. You honor their dignity. And even if a person doesn't feel dignified, you know, or have, like they have dignity, when you treat them like infants, when you treat them like they can't think for themselves, and they, you know, they don't have any agency, then you're confirming that powerlessness. You are not empowering them. And to honor a person's dignity, even if they don't feel quite there, that's a big deal. That can be really, really helpful to someone. But you're meeting them on their platform, not on yours. And I think that's what a lot of these people are missing. It would be pretty amazing to, to some people, I'm sure, if they knew what all we do in terms of our work, you know, how much goes into it. And, and how much pride we take in, in doing what we do. And um, it's a really big deal. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, we're going to, you know, well, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We are going to win. It's just a matter of when. And I'm very excited, you know, the court case in California, we were dismissed by the three-panel judge but we are now filing for en blanc, en blanc, <laughs> I guess that's how you say it, where we are going to ask the whole entire Ninth Circuit to rule on it, which is one of the options that we have. And I think it really is a serious enough issue that the whole Ninth Circuit should 
at least before they dismiss it completely, have to listen and, and to it. And then they decide. And if they dismiss it then, then we go up to the Supreme Court. And, you know, all these other cases that were so important, like Bowers, and which was the case prior to Lawrence regarding the decriminalization of gay sex, sodomy, uh, as it's called legally, <laughs> um, they, you know, they lost for a long time. I mean, they had to fight. And the, the Bowers case helped the Lawrence case, which came later. So, you know, this is, it's just going to, we're just going to keep fighting. You know, we're like Maxine Dugan said, you know, we're tough. We are, you know, we're some of the toughest people that, you know, I'm talking people all over the planet who are involved in sex work. And if the bomb ever does get dropped, it'll be roaches and sex workers who are left. <laughs> but uh, hopefully that'll never happen. <laughs> You know, that's just like, you know, we've had to go through so much and continue to go through so much. And, you know, we just can't seem to get a break, but we're going to get it. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. Well, thank you again so much, L, for coming on and, and for, for putting yourself out there to continue sort of fighting this fight and, and for being so visible and, and both like across the U.S., but like especially in Denver, I think. That's just been great. So, thank you. I love you guys. You awesome, very supportive, and you know the human trafficking center. I totally believe in what you guys are doing, and it's so important that there be a well-rounded discussion that doesn't exclude any voices. And you know, I appreciate the voices I don't agree with. You know, as long as they're going to listen to what I have to say too. You know, I mean, it's like good grief. We're not always going to agree on everything, and you know, we need to be able to hash this stuff out and and you know, find that healthy place for everybody. Yeah, and to everyone listening, I mean, that's that's what this podcast today is about: is uh, listening to different perspectives, learning. You know, my views of prostitution are very mixed, and I don't know everything, though. And I can s expand my, my points of view, realize, like, some of the good that can come from what somebody like Dominael is doing. And, uh, and in terms of dealing with trafficking, you have to understand what is sex trafficking, what is not sex trafficking, how does exploitation happening. And we're not going to do that by just sitting in an ivory tower or not talking to people who are different or talking to people who have to deal with the actual challenges of – see if I well, no, that. Being, being, I would say with the, with the actual challenges of be, being a person out in the world – People have, have different jobs, have different vocations, have different lifestyles, have different things that they like and they dislike. And, you know, I would never be an emergency room doctor because I have a problem with blood and poo. Doesn't mean that there shouldn't be emergency room doctors. <laughs> I have <get> job. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, and there are people who are down for that. It's, it's the same as that I think there, there are people who really thrive working in sort of a service industry where they're communicating with people and they have they have the ability to do that emotional labor and be fulfilled by it there are people who who feel much more comfortable sort of working with like raw numbers people people are just different and i think one of the things that the the anti-trafficking field has unfortunately is not really taken in diverse perspectives or sort of had this conversation about not everything is, is as black and white as it was sort of when we're doing uh, 
historical slavery where you have people clearly being held in legal bondage and that's just a no i think it's it's much more modern modern human trafficking is it's much more nuanced than that and if you're not willing to examine the sort of nuances of that you're you're putting yourself at a disadvantage and hurting people now one of the things that we keep coming back to is if you you marginalize people you put them in vulnerable positions that they are more likely to be in a position where they could be exploited and so any time where you have an underclass of people or you have people who are in legally dubious or gray positions, that can lend itself to exploitation and to severe forms like human trafficking. And so all of these conversations are important. If we want less trafficking, if we want less exploitation, then we have to have people who are not marginalized and dehumanized. Well, like, I think, too, a lot of people in the trafficking realm just assume that when you have an org that is there saying that they are helping people I mean everything is very black and white in many ways like this is bad this is good and you know the horror stories that we could tell you from diversion programs and and from some of these you know shelters it's not cut and dry it's not and and you know just like erotic services isn't all trafficking the treatment programs and and I mean exploitation can happen anywhere you know it could be in the uh, the so-called solution to the exploitation could be exploitation you know I think that's something that people need to consider more and when they think about how to approach you know, dealing with things. But I love, you know, like the work of Laura Augustine and listening to her lecture the other day where, you know, she had sat and talked with all these people who would be definitely legally defined as trafficking victims. But they were doing, you know, they were asking to be smuggled from one place to another. Ask, you know, and then they would go to sell sexual services in other countries and go around and, and certainly did not see themselves or, or the, as, as sex trafficking victims or the, in, in other cultures where you have girls who are 14 and 15 in their culture, they are considered women. You know, which is very different from how we see things here in this country. There's just so many different variables. I, I try to honor people. I want to honor people from where they are. And um, I may not be able to understand where they are at first. I need to listen and pay attention and be willing to hear, you know, what people have to say. And I think that's something I wish that the people in the trafficking, it's really anti-prostitution in my opinion, um, in that whole business, because it is a business, our voices should matter. But hey, they're making lots of money, a lot of them, off of our criminalization. So it, they're, they're profiting from our criminalized status. I mean, is that not exploitation? <laughs> <sighs> it's complicated. We've talked about this too. We've just been like, hey, if you want, if you want easy answers or an easy field, this is not the profession to to get into. There are, there are better ones that will lead to a lot less soul-searching and headaches. Soul-searching is good. <laughs> Sometimes you're like, I just need a break. <laughs> All right. And as, as always, everyone out there in, in listener land, the stuff we talked about, we link you to websites and articles and things to read. So please read, comment call us back we would love to have l back i will take any like basically pretense to hear l talk about things so 
I love you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Well, no, but it's just I think I think as someone who's an academic who writes things in on this, but who is not an erotic service provider, has never been an erotic service provider. I don't I don't work in I'm I work adjacent to this field, but I think it's really important for people who are actually there working to have their voices heard. That's that's part of the reason why Seth and I started this podcast to get the voices of, of people who we consider to be phenomenal allies, you know, out there a, a little bit more on more of an academic setting. So I'm I'm really excited we can we can do that and hopefully people will contact us with like questions and things either for us or for, for you or just sort of in, in general. I love pushback. So Well, I seem to be good at that. Well <laughs> Thanks for uh, you know inviting me. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming on. Bye, everybody. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.